This podcast is proudly presented by Patagonia. Not bound by convention, Patagonia is in business to save our home planet. This podcast is sponsored by Deuter, one of the leading backpack brands that will help you hit the trails with confidence and comfort, but most importantly, your snacks. Deuter has a history of first ascents and alpine routes. Their head of product development even climbed Everest once in jeans. Hashtag not fake news. Founded in 1898, Deuter believes in fit, comfort, and ventilation. So you can focus on way cooler things like puppies, pocket bacon, and getting sendy, whether at the crag or in the alpine. Today we're going to talk about Ali. Ali means come on in a way or to encourage. Okay, we are done with the simple and normal uses of Ali. Now let's cut to the chase. LA Outdoor Personal Care products are made by climbers for those who love the outdoors. Their rich and repairing ingredients for their skincare collection are inspired by desert landscapes, and their simple and recyclable packaging makes them eco-sustainable. LA commits to protecting the open spaces that we love by partnering with the Access Fund and 1% for the Planet. That's LA Outdoor, A-L-L-E-Z. LA Outdoor, made by climbers for those who love the outdoors. This podcast gets support from Gnarly Nutrition, one of the leading protein supplements that tastes way better than they need to because they use quality natural ingredients. So whether you're a working mom who runs circles around your kids on weekends or an unprofessional climber trying to send that 513 in the gym, Gnarly Nutrition has all of your recovery needs. The only question you need to ask yourself is, are you a sucker for anything that tastes like chocolate ice cream? Yeah, me neither. Gnarly Nutrition is designed to enhance your progress. And tastes like a milkshake without all the crap. Okun? No. Okun? No. Really? Okun? Who is Otsun? More than prolific crack climbing gloves, Otsun has been making innovative gear engineered for climbing to improve your performance since 1998. Their climbing shoe designs are all original, developed and manufactured in Czech Republic, and 100% gender neutral. Beyond their sticky rubber, Otsun is renowned for their hardware, harnesses, and the biggest, lightest crash pad on the market. Find your new favorite climbing shoes and accessories at Backcountry, Moose Jaw, Camp Saver, and Amazon. This podcast is sponsored by the Southern Utah Wilderness Alliance. Because you listen to this show, we know that responsible recreation is important to all of you. Increasing visitation and rapid expansion of human-powered recreation has adverse impact to the delicate desert ecosystem. What climbers and other recreationists need are more thoughtful land management plans, which can help minimize the impact of camping and recreating in fragile desert environments. Help protect the places you love to climb by asking the Bureau of Land Management to better manage recreation. Visit SUA.org, that's S-U-W-A, slash recreation, or text Utah R-E-C to 52886 to get started and protect wild Utah. Um, this is Savannah McCauley. Um, so I'm going to share, I guess, a little bit about my story with you. Um, I currently live in a 2000 Toyota Tacoma with my dog, Sequoia. I started living in it about a year ago. It'll be a year in August. Prior to that, I was living in New York. 
I've lived there since I was 17, so for about nine years or so. I learned to climb up the cliffs and up in the gunks, and I worked at GP81 up until uh, the very beginning of 2020. So it's my place, it's my home. And I had gotten a really big contract and it was really exciting. And I packed up my apartment and I had no idea, but I was never gonna go back. And for me, climbing in all of this has really just taken shape in the community. It's really less about how much I climb now. I really don't climb as often um, as I did when I lived back east, but climbers have really been the biggest lifeline in feeling like I can do this. Savannah sent me an audio submission in 2021, and I took a look into her story. Turns out she wasn't just living the dirtbag climbing life for fun. In the wake of the pandemic, she lost her job and source of income, couldn't afford rent anymore, and basically blew up her life. But in the best way. 3,000 miles from home in the midst of a global crisis, Savannah, her dog Sequoia, and her truck took to the open road. Okay, I'm on You were listening to the Love of Climbing podcast. It's a funny sense of uncomfortable climbing. I was like, wow, this is the opposite of my podcast, but you know, here we go. <laughs> I'm Alex Honnold, and you're listening to For the Love of Climbing. Is it to the, or to, do you say to For the Love of Climbing podcast? I'm Alex Honnold, and you're listening to For the Love of Climbing podcast. Yeah, yeah, I see it. You're listening to For the Love of Climbing podcast. This is not a climbing podcast. Well, sorta. It's a funny, sad, and somewhat uncomfortable podcast about choosing vulnerability. Here's the show. <laughs> Easy cheesy. Yeah, I grew up in a really small town outside of San Francisco. So <clears throat> I grew up very much on the coast, uh, pretty isolated, and I had bigger dreams. My name is Savannah McCauley, and I'm currently living in Salt Lake City, Utah. I am a cinematographer and a photographer, but I focus a lot on outdoor adventure, and that's what I do for a living. <laughs> and... Um, I just love being outside. I'm definitely still a kid when I go to work. I like play and run around the forest and that's kind of like where I started doing photography, but it's kind of still where I'm at. Like no matter where I really physically am, I'm always just like a giant kid. <laughs> I feel like people have always referred to me as kind of like a chihuahua. Like I'm really small, but I kind of pack a punch and I think I'm bigger than I am. Like I have this kind of big uh, energy and personality and I'm kind of loud sometimes, but I guess I'm also really thoughtful and I love people and I am somebody who constantly cares. I definitely used to think that was a big downside. I'm, I, I don't know how much you believe in like astrology, but I'm a Scorpio and I can seem very cold sometimes. I can be a little like brass, but underneath that, I think any of my friends who know me very well know that I'm just really sensitive. And I used to think that caring was... Uh, 
a weakness, honestly, like outwardly showing that I cared um, and telling people that I cared. It always felt it was such a vulnerable thing that I always kind of was like, oh, I don't really want to show that I'm weak in that regard, like by telling somebody I care about them and showing that. But I think as I've gotten older and grown into who I am and my work, I've definitely grown to really like that. I like showing people. I like giving good gifts. I like making people feel comfortable and safe and telling them that. I think especially after last year, I learned, like most people, that it's really important to tell the people that you love that you love them. I've feel like this past year, a lot of my friends have gotten used to being like, oh, I love you. It's kind of become a more common thing. And I'm really grateful that people have made me feel comfortable that like caring is important. Telling people that is really important. It's not that Savannah didn't grow up in a loving family because she did. She was raised by a single mom along with her aunt Karen. They didn't grow up poor, but they didn't grow up with a lot of money either. When the recession hit in the 2000s, they stopped shopping at Ralph's and went to the 99 cent store instead. All of this taught Savannah to work hard for everything she wanted in life, and it motivated her to move across the country when she was 17. Savannah was on a trajectory to find herself, to make a name for herself, to figure out what in the world was beyond her small coastal town and childhood. This girl had big plans, but... Life has a way of shaking that up all on its own. We don't grow up being bulletproof, but somewhere along the way, we start to believe that's how we need to be to survive, just to get by. And sometimes it takes things like patience and experience, or moving into a 6x6 truck bed to gain a little perspective. This is a story about the impermanence of life, a few different versions of grief, and how these things can change us when we least expect it. But probably need it the most. I started climbing in New York uh, about three years ago, so it really hasn't been that long. I'm still a baby, I feel like, when it comes to climbing. Um, I grew up a surfer. I've been surfing more than half of my life, and it's always been my safe place, and I love the ocean. And After I got out of college, I was working in film a lot, and then I got a nine to five working in a camera rental house um, for big like movies and stuff. I was like 23, but I couldn't surf anymore. Um, You know, in New York, like in the dead of winter, it's light at 8 a.m. and then it's like dark at like four. And so I'd go to work in the dark and I'd come home in the dark. And I was like super depressed about that. And a lot of my friends were like, you know, you should try climbing. We can do it all year round because we have a gym inside and you can do it in winter. And they were like, you know, we climb on Sundays. Like we kind of all as a film crew, like climb together. And I was like, okay, cool. Come try it. And then I ended up loving it. I bought a membership and a pair of shoes like right then and there. So brand new to climbing, Savannah dove head first. She started working at GP81 and was climbing in the gunks. And there is something really special about being a climber in a city, New York City of all cities. Savannah had never lived anywhere else. It was the closest thing she had to call home since she'd left home. And it was hers. She'd never lived anywhere else, and she didn't think that she wanted to live anywhere else because there's really no place in the world like New York. Yeah, people walk really fast, and they say, like, fuck you when you're trying to cross or jaywalk, and, like, just there's just, like, a life to it, and I loved it. And 
my whole career started because of climbing and because of my relationships at the cliffs. I never planned on doing this for a living. I kind of always had planned on working in like major television and, you know, kind of working in that world where I work from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. And um, I went to a No Man's Land film festival and Alexis was giving a presentation and I asked if I could photograph young women who crush. And from there, I kind of took off and, you know, I didn't really ever see a trajectory. I didn't really know how to do this for a living, but somehow people kept giving me a camera and being like, we really like your stuff, like keep doing it. People spend their whole lives pursuing a career, but if you're lucky, sometimes your passion finds you. Savannah was working with brands like Patagonia, The North Face, and Backcountry. Things were happening. Her career quickly evolved from her 18-page script on a sequel to James Cameron's Titanic and filming in her backyard on a shitty DV cam to television media to adventure, photography, and film. And then she landed her biggest job ever, and it was really validating. All of her efforts as a woman photographer were starting to pay off, and it wasn't just any job. This was a really big deal job, the kind that could change everything. It was a really big deal for me because I had finally fulfilled both my parents' and my own, like, dreams two-in-one. And it was a big deal because I had kind of proven, like, it works. Like, if I get out there, if I get to Crags, if I start talking with people and showing people my work and just keep photographing things that I love, like, it pays off. And, you know, I mean, I don't... I don't like to talk too much about money, but I think it is important, like, when I was negotiating my salary, trying to figure out what I was worth was a really big deal, and we had landed on $85,000 a year because I was a photographer, and I was a videographer, and I was an editor, and I was doing a lot of people's jobs. And I think it's important to talk about that because I think a lot of women in this field don't know what to ask for, and I struggle with that, and I still have people ask me about that. So I think it's kind of important to talk about what I was negotiating because your time and your effort and your ability to make really great things should be valued in that. It is so refreshing, not awkward, to talk openly about money. A recent Luminary Indeed survey cites that 41% of women don't advocate for themselves when it comes to negotiating salary. And the unfortunate truth behind that is because those who are willing to fight for their value can be considered aggressive or hard to work with. But with more attention on gender and racial wage gaps, many companies have adopted full-pay transparency policies, which is often worse for women of color. White women in the U.S., on average, earn 79% of what white men make. Black women earn 63%, Native American, 57%, and Hispanic women, 54%. There's controversy about transparency, but it's billed as a viable solution to closing pay gaps. Adventure photography and film isn't what Savannah had initially set out to do. But in 2019, Savannah began advocating for herself. And in February of 2020, she flew to Seattle for the first time. It got there and it was great. You know, I was supposed to go to Flash Foxy and Bishop. Uh, I think that was like that March. And um, and then things got really weird. Worldwide this morning, growing concern over a growing health crisis. With health officials here in the U.S. moving fast to prepare for what the CDC has called an inevitable spread. Tonight, more than 1,300 people sickened in the U.S. At least 39 have died in this country. 
At least 45 states now and the District of Columbia reporting cases. And now here in New York City, a state of emergency declared as well. And all of a sudden we were like, oh, they had to cancel our flights to Flash Foxy and then and then they canceled Flash Foxy and it kind of just kept getting like progressively worse and the pandemic was really becoming a serious issue. We stopped working at the office. I mean, it was like a ghost town. We literally picked up, you know, our bags and things, but then we never went back. Like I had to go back, I think a month later to like get my pens and my drives out of the drawer because I just picked up and thought I would be back next week and, and I wasn't. Um, and you're trying to figure out how to work from home and you're trying to figure out like, well, how do we do this? And they were already struggling to figure out how to integrate my skills into what they really needed. Um, and I was let go at the end of April. And then I remember the Zoom call and I was like, oh no, why is the HR lady here? <laughs> A six month contract quickly turned into three. Savannah had come to Seattle with the expectation of going back home, but that never happened. She couldn't get on a plane, was still paying thousands of dollars in rent on her apartment in New York, and worst of all, she never got to say goodbye. I had a few friends, but like we're in lockdown now, and I I ended up with two of my cousins who are so wonderful, but you know, they're like 65. So I always laughed that everybody got a COVID bay and I got a whole bunch of home skills because I stayed with two 65 year olds. <laughs> like I learned to quilt and jam and like garden. Well, at least I gained some notable skills. Like so many others, Savannah spent her time trying to figure out what to do next. You know, in between the quilting and baking. But the harsh reality was she couldn't go back home. She was really stranded and slowly going broke. It was unfortunately also right at the time when New York was just being obliterated by COVID. And I was too scared to get on a plane. I was like, like, where do I go? What do I do with my life? Like, I felt like a ship just like loose out to sea. Do I go get a frontline worker job? But I'm living with two people who are older. You know, is that selfish? Do I take unemployment? Where do I get that? And I think around the summertime, I was like, I can't even afford to go back to New York if I wanted to. You know how in most families, there's that one cool person that you can always turn to. They're professional, don't look a day over 30, and usually without kids of their own. As more women postpone motherhood, aunthood promises both independence and family connection. The cool aunt has become an aspirational identity. But Savannah's aunt was more than just a trending hashtag. She was a safe space and a second mother. Most people have that one family member, and that person to Savannah was her Aunt Karen. Just the little things, like the smell of hazelnut coffee creamer and, like, Sweet peas, wild sweet peas, like always. I mean, that's what this tattoo is. And those were her flower. And then this one is foxglove. And that one's me. But yeah, coffee creamer, flowers. And she was a huge quilter and uh, loved her quilts. But it's like the little things that I remember the most. Like she taught me how to ride a scooter and do a sick razor trick, like on the little scooters, you know, when you like kick flip it so it like turn around and spin. She taught me how to do that. Savannah couldn't go back to New York, and she was stuck in Seattle for an indefinite amount of time. In between that time between gardening and quilting and probably losing a little bit of her sanity, she had a crazy idea. 
She wanted to build out a truck bed and live out of it, except she didn't have a truck. Savannah didn't even have a job, but she knew that she wanted to keep pursuing her career in photography. And she knew that she wanted to get out of Seattle. So she went to her Aunt Karen for help because that's what hashtag cool ants do. But I have $5,000, like, could you help me? And she said yes, and she gave me $4,000, and I I think I went to see, like, two or three different Tacomas, and then I finally found this one, and uh, she had 106,000 miles, uh, original miles on her, which to anybody who's a Tacoma lover, like, pick up your jaw right now, I know. It's pretty impressive for a 2000. It was, like, a really big deal. And it's got four-wheel drive and so geeky, but... Um, yeah, uh, she helped me buy it, and she helped me name it. Her name is Blondie, mostly because I have blonde hair now, and I owned something for the first time in my life. I think, for me, it was definitely a very, I don't want to say unique experience. Yeah, my origin story for living in the truck, I think, comes from, a, honestly, a kind of sad experience. I bought the truck, and then my aunt got really, really sick. Um, she had leukemia since I was a kid, but it was one of those things where she was kind of like superwoman. Like she always found a way to beat it or like look great. I mean, she never lost her hair. We always joked that she could never play the cancer card because she looked fantastic. Everything that happened next happened pretty quickly. Karen's health went downhill, and she wound up being taken to a hospital in Portland. And a part of Karen's treatment at that point was to undergo a stem cell transplant. So Savannah packed up a few belongings, got into Blondie, and headed to Portland. A lot of people don't know how your body's going to react. Um, you basically wipe out your whole immune system with chemo and then replace it with someone else's. A lot of the times doctors don't really know. It's really unique to each person. And my aunt had gotten really, really sick and they had actually put her in a medically induced coma because her body just was tired and needed it. But they took her off the medication and she wasn't waking up. And it was really hard for my uncle. And my mom was like, I need you to go down to Portland. And so that was the first time I ever slept in the truck. Uh, I packed up and I went down there and spent time with my family and realized like, I think this is a longer haul than I knew. And so I drove three hours back to pick up Sequoia and some stuff, drove back down to Portland that day and slept in the truck. And like, that was kind of the first of it. Like I slept on the floor and um, she died uh, the 18th of August. Um, and that was, yeah, that was really hard. We've talked a lot about sudden traumatic death on this podcast. Losing someone after watching them slowly fade isn't any easier. It's just different. Because even when you're prepared to lose someone, you're never really prepared for what their death is going to mean. Karen's body wasn't up to the task anymore. And there was no way for Savannah to prepare for what that loss meant. There was only going through it and finding out, day by day. I went back to Washington and I packed up my stuff and I was on the road. Like now looking back on it, it's been over a year. I could strongly say that that was a really solid coping mechanism. <laughs> um, I've always kind of said to people like, when you watch someone die, there's a part of you that just kind of like gets lost. 
from like a human soul standpoint, if you believe in any of that, like watching someone of your own like physically die in front of you is a really, really hard experience. And I think it steals something from you. And I always kind of felt like being in the truck was a really good thing, but I think it also was a way of me trying to like find what I lost. And uh, I think a lot of people believed that I was just like living on BLM land. And I was very privileged in that, you know, in the middle of a pandemic, I was, you know, out at the salt flats or I could travel, I could move. And a lot of people who lost family members to COVID like couldn't do that. And really, I can't even imagine because I dealt with it by like moving all the time. And that was the only thing I could control was where to next. But it was definitely a way to like cope with experiencing that loss and trying to physically find whatever it was that I lost that day. Um, and I try to be really honest with people and I try to present vulnerability because that's what I ask of others. I've always believed that I as a photographer and as an artist and as a cinematographer hold a lot of responsibility for making people feel comfortable with what I'm capturing because they're the ones that are putting their vulnerability and their anger and their, you know, like frustration on the wall. Like they're showing that to me. And it is a responsibility of mine as a person who captures it with a camera, like to hold space for them and make sure that they feel safe. So I've always tried to do the same because I ask that of people. But at that point, I think I was so deep in like a grief hole that I like didn't know how to talk about it. I mean, I just didn't know how to put it into words. I barely know how to put it into words now. And in the year that I was on the road, I took very few images. Um, I went back to California to visit my dad at one point. And I just didn't even, I couldn't even, like to my own dad, couldn't explain, like, I don't really want to photograph a world where she doesn't exist. So, you know, to explain that to people, it was just too much to, ask for their vulnerability when I couldn't give it back. We're going to take a short break, so don't go anywhere. Or we're a podcast. You can take us everywhere. We're working with BetterHelp to connect you to licensed therapists. They'll match you with the perfect therapist for a fraction of the cost of traditional therapy. You know who goes to therapy? Prince Harry, Emma Stone, Jenny Slate, Kesha. Therapy is beautiful. Everyone should go to therapy. Go to betterhelp.com slash climbing to sign up and receive 10% off your first month. It helps support the show and it helps support you. Patagonia reintroduces clean climbing, a philosophy that challenges us to ask ourselves what constitutes success. From the commercial introduction of chalks in 1972 to cams in 1978, clean climbing meant that we could finally climb free. This was the beginning of modern climbing. Yvonne Chouinard and Tom Frost argue that this ethic of style over summit should also inspire climbers and mountaineers to restore our commitments to each other and to the planet we're working to save. Go deeper and check out the 2022 reflection on the state of clean climbing. Bring back clean climbing by Mei Li Hung on the Patagonia website. Visit patagonia.com stories for more.
so they call it like dead parents club. And I still have both of my parents. Um, but my aunt raised me just as much as my mother did. So losing her was like losing a parent. So I always, you know, I definitely gravitated more towards people who had experienced the same kind of loss because I didn't have to explain it, but I isolated myself quite a lot. And I think the truck was negative in that regard. Like spending that much time on the road, I spent a lot of time alone. I think a lot of people don't realize you're not always going to go to a state and like find people and yeah, I slept in a lot of Walmart parking lots. Like, do not get me wrong. Still great sunsets from a Cracker Barrel parking lot. But I also really subscribe to this reality of like, I have a lot of privilege in this, in what I do. Savannah's time on the road doesn't accurately reflect what we often see on social media, but does it ever? Van life as a concept is a one-word lifestyle signifier that we're finally free. Free from the oppression of a 9-to-5, free to follow our hearts and our passions, to embrace the climbing bum lifestyle and be rootless wanderers for the rest of our days. And some of that can be true, but not every day, because being a person on the road also means that you spend a lot of time alone. And when stripped of friends and family and forced to be alone to reckon with self-reflection, you might be surprised with what comes up. Savannah learned that the privilege to electively suffer still comes at a cost. It didn't give her more time with her aunt, but it did give her the ability to bloom with a new season, to grow big enough to hold both love and grief simultaneously. Because grief, at its deepest core, is an act of love itself. I've always like struggled a lot with femininity. My mom is such a strong, independent person that that's kind of how I was raised, like tough. And I love that about myself. But like my aunt definitely embodied more of that like femininity. And I think that since she's died, I've really tried to like understand that because that is, I think, where my hesitation to be vulnerable with other people and share my feelings about my grief comes from this idea that like I have to be really tough. And so this year, wildflowers kind of just became this like symbol of her and like, you know, they're super resilient. They come up through anything and everything, including burned or destroyed territory. And they still find a way to be really beautiful, but they also have cycles. They bloom and then they die and then they come back next year. But like they have these ebbs and flows of life and they kind of became like a really good way for me to like see that that's how grief works. That's how life works. And I have a very strong connection to where I grew up. I grew up in a redwood grove, essentially. And the most amazing thing that I've learned about redwoods is that redwoods Redwoods grow from ash. They need destruction to live. They need that fire. When COVID hit, like my whole life just like burned up. Totally obliterated. Didn't have my home. I didn't have my friends anymore. Like I didn't have anything. My aunt was gone. Like I had my mom, but like she was 3,000 miles away. And I felt like I had no foundation left. But Redwood trees thrive off of that and it looks like they're dead, but they've got these like amazing, big, fuzzy exteriors. And in order for them to sprout seedlings, they need ash and they need fire. And so I always just felt like a really strong connection to home and to wildflowers this year because that's how I kind of feel. I'm like, I am like a tree. I am like these huge redwoods. And I needed that destruction to help me like 
just recreate a whole new life for myself. And I never would have left New York. I never would have done half the things that I've done. But the biggest thing about sequoias that are really cool is they have networks of roots underneath the ground for miles. And that's how they share water with each other. And that's how they survive, that's how they live so long. And I've always just kind of felt like this year, like that's what I've become. Like I have hundreds of thousands of miles of like networking with friends and people that help keep me safe and thriving. Um, and they don't always have to be immediately next to me. And same with my aunt, like, I mean, that truck, I will never get rid of it. I will like never sell it. It will always be with me. But when I'm in it and experiencing these little things, like I'm definitely with her and showing her all these crazy, ridiculous things that I do, like going to crags and you know, she would definitely like wag her finger at me learning like track climbing, all this stuff. But, you know, I feel like it just kind of brings her with me. And yeah, I feel like just being in it and having it with me is the closest thing to having her with me. Finally made it without a clue where I am. With all of the holes in my When the sun sets a little bit sooner My appetite grows pretty thin And you seem a little bit further From the last place I've been I lived in a truck for a year, but the things that matter to me the most still matter to me the most. Like, I needed people, and people showed up, and I needed my family, and they were there when I needed them. And finding a happiness in between does not cost anything. It is not something that capitalism or that society can buy you. And I think that maybe a lot of people have started to realize that, like, you can have all this income, you can have all these fun toys and things and pretty houses, but it doesn't give you happiness. And when you simplify it and you boil it down, like living in a truck, it's really just the little things. Like, I got to watch so many amazing sunrises and sunsets, and like, those are the things that make you feel alive. And no matter how much you subscribe or unsubscribe to that, like, that's what we all should really be aiming for, is like, just learning about how to sit down and enjoy the little things, like a campfire when it's really cold out, or like, you know, I love to paint, and um, my aunt taught me to really love wildflowers this year, and so learning how to identify those, like, those are all things that are free, and, you know, whether you live in a truck or not, like, you can go find those things, and they don't cost anything. 
it grow so much faster the older and older I get but time is a clever invention we are helplessly participants you're listening to for the love of climbing podcast a huge thank you to Deuter, one of the leading backpack brands that will help you hit the trails with confidence and comfort. And a big thank you to Gnarly Nutrition for supporting this podcast and the messages that we share. Gnarly Nutrition supports a community of vulnerability and equality and tastes like a milkshake without all the crap. A big shout out to LA Outdoor for supporting the Access Fund and 1% for the planet. And to Otsun, innovative gear engineered for climbing to improve your performance. And thanks to Patagonia. Not bound by convention, Patagonia is in business to save our home planet. Support companies who support this podcast. We couldn't do it without them. If you liked what you heard, you can leave a review on iTunes or give us a like. Like all good things, you can find us on the internet. 